And I was saying to someone else earlier this morning, uh, I'm not complaining, but it feels like it's been a long break. It feels like it's been a long time since we were at the tail end of Thanksgiving, and then we had the four weeks of Advent, and just the things that, uh, I don't want to say put us off course, but diverted our course for a few weeks there. It, It feels like it's been a long time. And I can't help but just be honest with you in regards to, as I was preparing this morning's message, um, just the recognition that it's, it, I have a task this morning of getting your head back in the game of where we were six Sundays ago. Think about that. Uh, it was a long time ago. And for us to redraw our minds back to where we were in Galatians. I am not going to re-preach this first half of Galatians, I promise you that. But I am going to help I'm going to attempt just to do some real simple cues to draw your mind back to where we've been. Because I understand, I can empathize with the fact that when you step away from a text that long, you're like, okay, yeah, where were we? What was happening? And as the slide behind me shows, we are entering into the fourth chapter of Galatians. But I want you just to process, I want you to think, this is not a test, you're not going to have to raise your hand and embarrass yourself to think about what the right answer is. But I want you to be thinking about what is the primary argument that Paul is making. It's an apologetic, we might say, in regards to the gospel. The primary message in those first three messages, or those first three chapters. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the very important qualification to that, when we think about the alone, No works of the law, no works of myself are required. In fact, when we bring our works to the table of salvation, we corrupt it. We make it something completely different. It is in, I have a new toy this morning, in Galatians chapter 2. Oh boy. In Galatians chapter 2, that did something very different than I thought it would do. In Galatians chapter 2, you know these words. Read them with me. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Uh, And again, as we were in this book just a few weeks ago, we were closing chapter 3. In the second half of chapter 3, Paul addressed this principle. Maybe this illustration will stand out to you to recall where we were. We talked about the concept of how we divide and measure all of history and time of B.C. A.D. Do you remember when we talked about that? We talked about the concept of B.C. and simply represented in the idea of before Christ. A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. These two abbreviations delineate the great divide of all of history, B.C., A.D. We can also say when we think about that illustration, we think of it in an illustrative fashion, we can say that this division also represents every one of our lives before and after Christ. But as we said weeks ago, when we say that, that's with the presumption of if. That's with the presumption that you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If that is true, if you have in fact trusted Christ, then there is a B.C. 
AD component to your life. Before you were Christ, before you were in Christ, after you came to Christ. Every person here is either. There's no in between. There's no gray. Every person here is either in Christ in the year of our Lord, AD, or out of Christ. You are dead in your trespasses and sin, a slave to sin and the law. You are children of your father, Satan. Scripture very plainly talks about that. And so even as we start and we prepare our hearts for chapter 4, the question to start into this text is, I want you to think about this, and how would you honestly answer this? What side of salvation do you reside in right now? Are you in Christ or out of Christ? There is only way, only one way, it is only in Christ, and the only way, the only means of receiving that gift is not your works, it's not works of the law, it's not in the measurement of who surrounds you or anything of that nature, it's not based on the family you grew up in or the church you attend, it is only on the merit of placing your faith, your trust, your dependence in what Christ has done on your behalf. Today. We turn to chapter 4. And when you look at chapter 4, I want you to look at the very first words in chapter 4. And and what I'm going to draw your attention toward is what he starts chapter 4 with points us back to what we just learned in chapter 3, though it was weeks ago. That's why it was important for us to remember that. The very first words of chapter 4 in the translation I'm reading from, I mean that the heir. Now, there's so much more we're going to qualify here in just a minute, but that immediately clues me into the fact that when I look at the conclusion of chapter 3, he's talking about heirs in that section as well. So he's connecting these thoughts. Though there's a chapter delineation in our text, it doesn't mean that Paul's logic or thought process has changed. He's still teaching from the same, uh, the same mindset. And so what we can see in verses 23 to 26 of the preceding chapter is Paul uses this illustration to communicate B.C. and A.D. Those are things we talked about weeks ago. He uses, in those verses from the preceding chapter, a contrast, we might say, or a comparison of a slave who's set free, one who once was a slave but is now free. The second picture, the second contrast or illustration is that of a child who becomes an adult. He's going to continue to build those illustrations when we turn into chapter 4. Now, when we think about this idea of B.C., A.D., just continuing to use that illustration to help us understand, a slave was before Christ, but now we are free. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. A child before Christ becoming an adult, salvation, in the year of our Lord, in Christ, we might say. So in chapter 4, Paul shifts this direction of this message out of the argument. He's been building this case of this is what salvation is. It's not works of the law. Quit residing in the law. Quit turning back to the law. In chapter 4, it's the same logic. It's the same teaching But he's going to progress and he's going to bring in a new component, which frankly we haven't done yet in Galatians. In chapter 4, he now starts to build the outcome. 
He now starts to talk about what does it mean to be in Christ? If you once were a child, but now you are an adult, if you once were a slave, but now you've set, been set free, this is what this means. This is what we have, ready? Inherited. This is what we have received. This is what it means to be a child of God himself. Look at verse 7 from chapter 4 in in an introductory fashion. We would say it this way with a preface. If you are in Christ, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the emphasis where we're coming to today. He's been talking about how we receive salvation. Now he's going to start talking about what comes out of this. What, what does this mean? What are the practical realities related to that? So let's read this morning's text. I'm going to try this thing again. Hopefully it won't go blank. Nice. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Follow along as I read. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, uh, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Holy Spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of God. All right, so here's your outline. Simple three-point outline. I'm doing something wrong with this, this great device we have now. Here we go. Here's your outline. Formerly, you were under the law. You were a child and a slave. Verses 1 to 3. Point number 2. Now, you're redeemed in Christ. No longer a slave, but a son. Number three, you are ready to give all this up? Are you really? Why would you turn from this is really the question that we're seeing there. That's in verses 8 through 11. One more click here. I'm going the wrong direction. Up means back and down means down. Sorry. There we go. It's the first time I've used it. Uh, Formerly under the law, child and a slave. So when we see this, we see this in verses 1 through 3. Today we think of being an heir more related to the idea of wealth, possessions, or an estate. When you think of being an 
an heir. You think about someone's will being read. You think about, is my name in the will? What will I be receiving? That's how we process what, when we think of this idea of an heir. In our contemporary age, when we think about that idea, there's a correlation to what Paul's building, but it's different. I want to try and explain that. In today's world, if you're a minor, upon the passing of your benefactor, assuming that's your parents, right, uh, you typically will not fully receive what has been entrusted to you until you, re- until you become an adult, Right? Usually those kinds of uh, things that are being passed on to you, houses, cars, land, money, whatever that would be, would be held, and the word we would use today would be held in trust, right? They would be guarded. Maybe there'd be a stipend or something that would go to you to take care of your needs until adulthood, but someone else would manage that. Someone else would care for that so that your needs were met. But then upon becoming an adult, these things are turned over to you. They're relinquished to you. They're given to you. There's some correlation to that idea, but Paul's talking about something very different here, okay? So when we think about the idea of a trust or a trustee, the one who manages or watches over that, we see that concept in verse 2, a guardian or a manager, right? But we have to remember, we think of this in our cultural terms. In 20, I almost said 23, 2024, We think in what we can understand, and when we think about what it means to be a part of an estate, the way probates work, the the way that kind of situation is developed, we have to remember Paul's talking to a completely different culture. He's talking to a different time, a different people that viewed and thought of these processes very differently than we do. And though some of what I mentioned in modern probate practices is applicable about possessions, about stuff, There's a different nuance that we see here, and most specifically, it's addressing the death of a parent and possessions that might be transferred to adulthood. That's what we think of it today. In the culture of Paul's time, he's developing the idea of a child, an adolescent, a minor, that would be our modern day way of saying it, taking on all of the rights, the privileges, and responsibilities of adulthood. It says this in verse 1. As long as he is a child, he is, not he, but is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. I'm going to qualify one more thing before we take another step here. All this illustration is stated in the masculine. It's talking about a he, a son, but these are, this is not exclusively saying this is a masculine thing. This is the point of his illustration. This is about sons and daughters of the father. This is about us. This is how we need to think about it. So as a child, as an heir, these rights, these benefits, these privileges would not be given until that individual became an adult, until they were recognized as an adult. Look at verse 2 again. When does that happen? Until the date set by the father. That individual doesn't receive all the rights, all the privileges of being an adult and all the responsibilities that come with that, the benefits of being the son of the father, until the father says, you're ready. It's your time. And we could digress and spend a bunch of time talking about Old Testament patriarchs and how we see this succession take place. Many of you can think about some illustrations that might fall into that. But because as a child... 
Because as a child, the rights and privileges of the father's home were no different for a child than they were for a slave. That's what's being talked about in this passage. Yes, as a child, you were under the care of a master. You were under the care of that trustee, we might say. He watched over you, but who was that master? He was just a slave in the household. And from the terms of adulthood and freedom and responsibilities, you are no different than that slave. What Paul starts to talk about here is, as a child and as a slave in Christ, you are an heir. There is something that lies ahead of you. There's still something yet to come. Because as a child, the rights and privileges of the father's home were no different for a child than they would have been for a slave. Now, Right now, we're looking at this text. We're looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. And frankly, we kind of have, if you think about a microscope, those of you that are scientists, you think about it this way, we kind of have the lens zoomed in really tight. We're looking really closely at this. This is the moment we kind of want to back that lens out and kind of look at the bigger picture because this fits into a bigger scheme of what Paul's talking about here. So let's back the lens out a little bit. And when we do that, we now start to see some of chapter 3, some of his preceding argument. And I think when he's doing this, he's clearly pointing us back to chapter 3, verses 23 to 26. We just alluded to that a minute ago, but let's read those verses. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Notice the tense there. This faith, the, the means, the method, the way in which we receive this gift of salvation through faith, that's still coming he would say. So then, the law was our guardian. That guardian, by the way, is a slave in the household. He's under his master's responsibility. Until Christ came. Until the object of our faith, the person of our faith came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer children who are under this watch care. We are a son of the Father, but something yet needs to come. Under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. Through a trust and through a dependence. Now, let's take that idea and take your lens and back it out one more scope. Take it up one level higher. Maybe you want to spin it the other direction and bring a different lens in, however you want to think about describing that. Think about the bigger picture of what's going on in Galatians. Not just chapter 4, not just chapter 3, but now think of what every, the, the whole scope of what we've been looking at through this whole, this whole letter as we've been seeing it. What were the Judaizers doing to these Gentile believers in Galatia? They were bringing in a perverted gospel. They were bringing in a completely different gospel, a gospel that required works of the law in addition to grace as requirements for salvation, which, by the way, anytime you say something like we do something in addition to grace, that's a misnomer. Those those are incongruous statements. Grace plus anything is nothing. That doesn't work. But Paul's point is this. You were formerly, past tense, before Christ, held captive under the law, and were slaves. You were children. You hadn't reached the point of being heirs. You weren't fully adults. You were no different than a slave. You were a child in the home under the care of a guardian. 
As a child, you had no more rights in that household than a slave has who's appointed by the father to care and to watch over you. But now, spin that lens one more time. Go back to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3, starting with verse 2, actually, it says this. He, talking about that child, is under, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. I think just the simplest way to encapsulate elementary principles of this world, salvation by works. You were earning your way. You were doing what you could to earn your way. You were enslaved to these elementary principles. And then it says in verse 2, again pointing back to the date set by the father, upon the father's determination, the father makes a determination, this son, this daughter, this individual in my household is now a son of mine. He has now reached adulthood. He has now reached the point of responsibility, but all the privileges of my household in a different kind of way. He's no longer under that guardian. In the culture, Jewish boys, it would have been 13 at bar mitzvah. In the Greco-Roman world, many historical people would argue that it was maybe 18. Legally, in our culture, it's 18. Some would argue 17. Some would say, in today's world, who knows? Verse 2. The point is, at the date set by the Father. This child has become an adult. The child's status is now transferred. He was a child of the Father, but now he's a son. This is my son. He is no longer an, he is no longer an heir of what would come future tense. He is now a recipient of everything that has been promised and stored up for him as an heir of the Father. Paul's point is this. Look at verse 3. He takes the illustration and brings it to the reality of our salvation. In the same way. That tells us, I'm going to explain to you the illustration now. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Elementary principles of the world, that we were enslaved under the law and sin. We were held in bondage. We held no rights. We held no privileges. We held no freedom until Christ came, until the time was determined by the will of the Father to send the Deliverer, to send the Savior, and that moment of salvation came when we believed, setting us free, until, until you, this is personal, guys, until you as an unbeliever repent of your sin and your ability to save yourself until you place your trust in the complete, finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. According to what this text is building here, you remain a child or a slave, a slave to sin. You are bound, you're in captivity, no different in status between that child and the slave. What, belies, what lies below the surface in this illustration is the concept that all the rights, all the freedoms of salvation 
This is profound. They're already there waiting for you. They're not yet to be purchased. It's not yet to be done. Everything related to the inheritance that has been prepared is there. It's for you. This gift is prepared and purchased by the Father through the Son on your behalf. This is the simple call. The call is for obedience. Faith is an act of obedience. To reject the Son, the gift of salvation, is to be disobedient. The Father calls and says, it is done. The work is finished in my Son, Jesus. It's here for you. The gift is to be received, and it is out of obedience through faith. Now I'm going to click down. Point number two. Now redeemed in Christ. This is that shift. Paul says, let's build that illustration a little bit more. Now number two, let's talk about what this means, guys. Let's let's develop this. In verses 4 to 11, Paul outlines what he means to be a son. To be a son, there's something that comes out of this. There's something tangible. This is real. Let's talk about the practical realities of privileges and rights and freedoms in Christ. What it means to be a son, to be a full benefactor, a full recipient of all that there is for those who are in Christ Jesus. Subpoint A, how are we made sons? It says, as we look at this, this would be a fantastic Advent text for us to look at, by the way, because this harkens back to the historical, the biblical theology in regards to the coming Savior. Verse 2, it says in verse 2, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. Now in verse 4, the time has come. Now is the time. The time has come. Paul's connecting the dots between these two concepts. The Father, in the illustration, is our Heavenly Father. And until the time has come that the Father has determined, it is your time. The means, the method, the the method of salvation has been offered in my Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the fullness of time had come. God has sent His Son. This is incredible. Let me read it all in verse 4. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the message of the incarnation. This is the message that all of Scripture points to, that the deliverer, the Savior would come. The birth of the incarnate Son of God, not a random event. This is not something that was like, oh, wow, how did that happen? Let's make something good out of it. The incarnation, the gift of the Son, Jesus Christ, it was not God's plan B. This was his primary, this was his perfect, holy plan even before the foundations of the earth. This is, God's, uh, this is God according to his infinite knowledge. This is God according to his sovereign plan, according to his eternal purposes. We have to look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to think about this in light of God's eternal purposes and the Father's purposes and how he would accomplish this in his time, in his way, through his Son, Jesus Christ. And notice how personal this is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Whose will? The Father's will. This was God's will. This is what he has purposed. And how had the Father determined to accomplish this? Back to Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law. How? Through his own Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 4. God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Just coming out of the Advent season. I don't feel like I need to explain that further. Do I? Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Another cross passage that we should look at this morning is Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending, here's the incarnation, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He wasn't sinful in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is what God's eternal purpose is, has been, and has been fulfilled in Christ. So, in God's time, God the Father's time, He sent His own Son, God Himself, begotten of the Father, God Himself, to purchase us back from our sin that He might acquire, He might purchase an inheritance. Think about that, guys. This is us. This is for us. In Christ, we're redeemed. We're purchased back from our sin. That those who are in Christ might receive adoption as sons. That's verse 5. And adoption refers to a man giving a full and complete status of sonship to someone who is not his natural child. There's many historical arguments of the greatness, the glory of adoption. Not one born of human means, but the choice of saying, this will be my son. And it's an incredible message for us to think about the fact that the Father, in his will, in his time, in his sacrifice, in the gift of his own son, has done this to purchase us. If, if you have trusted in Christ, it's not the assumption that you have. If you have trusted in Christ, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer a child looking for what could come. You have received the very full measure of adoption. Sons and daughters of the Father, purchased by his own son, Jesus. So point B. And in that, we receive the very nature of God 
dwelling within us as his sons. That's a powerful thing to think about. By the way, here's the triune nature of God fully displayed in Galatians chapter 4. When we see this in verse 6, look at what it says. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Notice the fact that at least in my text, spirit is capitalized. This is the person, this is the Holy Spirit of God himself. When adoption takes place in this earthly human realm, uh, we can recognize the father cannot give his own full nature to the child. There's nothing derogatory about that. It's just a limitations of the reality of this world. An earthly father can train the child, can love the child, can bless the child. Adoption is beautiful and glorious. This is nothing that deteriorates or takes away from that in any way. But in, in a sense, please understand what the illustration is saying, that there is, there is not this full measure of the nature of the father that's implanted into that son. There's just a physical limitation in regards to that. Think about the glory of this in regards to what he's saying here is adoption as sons and daughters. God the Father has implanted his very nature within those whom he has redeemed through his son, Jesus Christ. This speaks of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. God has implanted his very nature within you. At the moment of salvation, at that moment of regeneration, the moment you pass from death into life, if you have, God the Holy Spirit has come in and indwelled the hearts, the lives of those who are his children. It's because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, you now have, think about this, a confidence to approach the one who is your own father. This is my dad. This is my heavenly father. This is the one who I was cut off from, the one who all was lost in the garden as a result of our sin. I am a sinner and I am guilty before him, but in his son, Jesus Christ, I have been purchased back. And as I am now his son, his own nature resides within me. That's inexplicable. It's because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You now have a common nature with God, your heavenly father, with God, himself. It's in John chapter 17 that it says this. This is Jesus's high priestly prayer. Verse 20, and I do not ask for these only, also, but also for those who will believe in me through the, their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. In them, in them, hey, let me say that again, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. This is that nature. Christ prayed for it. And in the Holy Spirit himself, this is fulfilled. And then there's an incredible intimacy that's spoken about here in this text, a relationship of intimacy. And it just starts out in this passage saying, Abba, Father. The technical way of saying this is Abba 
is the diminutive, the Aramaic word, father. Abba is a sweet term of endearment used by young children toward their fathers. If we were to translate this, we would not be in error to translate this in a different way to say that this is daddy. This is papa. This is endearment. Because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are brought into a personal, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. Only His children can confidently approach Him at any time, under any circumstance. Don't miss how glorious that is, guys. In Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, His nature is implanted in us. And we have the freedom the liberty to approach our father as daddy. That intimacy that's there. He always hears. He always welcomes. He always cares for those who are his. Fully and completely sons and daughters. But here's the obvious point we can't miss before we move forward. The obvious point is this. This is not by your works. That's the point of Galatians. You guys, Paul's saying to the church of Galatia, he says to us, don't for a minute think that there's something you can bring to this table that gives you this kind of intimacy. Your good works, the way you polish yourself, the do's and don'ts of your life are not what have redeemed you. It's Christ. It's his finished work. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and this intimacy, this oneness which has been restored through Christ and we have the reality of as the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. It's only by grace. It is only through faith. It is only in Christ and Christ alone. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Last point. Are you ready to give all this up? That's the point of what he's talking about to the Galatians, but this is for us as well. He's not saying you're going to lose your salvation. What he's coming to is he's saying you are embracing a different gospel. And what you're flirting with right now is to say, in one regard, I'm a child of the Father, but I want something else. In a sense, what he's saying is, is this really what you want? That's what you're dabbling with right now. As we see this concept, we continue to develop it, and we recognize, as my notes completely jumped, it says, but here's the thing. As a grand and glorious as this is, the Galatians are ready to surrender it. Let me read verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know him, or rather to be known by him, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You see the clear passage that he's saying there, the clear point? You're wanting to go back to works. You're wanting to embrace the law. To do that is to lose all that you have in Christ. They're considering throwing this all away, throwing grace away, adding works to this. And as we've already established, anytime we add something to grace, grace is not grace. 
It's just something completely different. They're pondering than slaving themselves to works. They're pondering the idea that by works, that, that they are by nature following other small g gods. They're considering, verse 9, turning back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. And the point is, Paul's illustrating this just with how ludicrous this is. Why would you go back to these things? This makes no sense. This is not an insignificant doctrinal matter. This is not a disputable matter. This is not one of those moments that you say, true for you, but not for me. This is authoritatively, clearly, the tip of the spear doctrine in regards to salvation. And he's saying, you're ready to throw this all away. This is a rejection of the very gospel itself. You probably remember this, but it's very important to correlate this to what we see here in chapter 4 when we go back to chapter 1 from many, many weeks ago. Paul starts his letter by saying this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want you to distort the gospel of Christ. Take that back to chapter 4. By abandoning this. Are you wanting to turn back to these things? Are you wanting to go back to works of the law? Are you wanting to go back to your childhood? Are you wanting to be a slave again? Are you wanting to give up what it means to be a son or a daughter of our father? Why in the world would we do this? Before Christ, we were all enslaved under the law and sin. Before Christ, we were all held in bondage. Before Christ, we had no rights, we had no privileges, we had no freedom. Until Christ came, setting us free. The glory of what we just celebrated at Christmas. This is personal, guys. Until you repent of your sin and humble yourself. The essence of that is, I can't do this. I cannot save myself. Repenting and turning from that thought process, what do I have to do to be saved? Until we turn from that, placing our faith, our trust, our dependence, not in ourself, but in the completed work of Christ on our behalf, we remain a child. We are a slave. We are bound in our sin. We are bound to the law, and it can't save us. This gift is prepared and purchased, the gift of salvation by the Father, through the Son, and guaranteed through the Holy Spirit. The call is for every one of us today to obey, to believe, to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Is today the day, the date set by the Father for you to come to Him crying 
Abba, Father.